Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the Gomology podcast, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today comes from the east coast of England and is Sophie Miller of Yarmouth Oilskins. Would you like to introduce yourself, Sophie? Hi there, Nick. Um, yeah, my name's Sophie Miller, and I'm fortunate enough to be the designer for Yarmouth Oilskins, um, which is a heritage brand based in East Anglia, all UK manufactured. Um, I arrived at become in this position having studied fashion and textile design at Kingston University and then I went from there to um, work in Italy for Max Mara Group for quite a long time and then a lengthy career with Marks and Spencer's design then via Adidas doing quite a bit of sportswear for Adidas and then by complete chance stumbled across um, the brilliant factory that I know it is today um, in my hometown when I returned home to find that they were still sewing and still manufacturing there. That's quite a varied background from sort of high fashion to frumpy fashion to sports. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first went to Italy, it was when I was first graduated from university and I was offered a job literally from our, our final graduate fashion show, which was amazing. And it was the, the best grounding in fashion design in terms of beautiful fabrics Italian manufacturing this is like the, the mid 90s mid to late 90s Italian manufacturing beautiful fabrics cost wasn't really a big influence on the design um, and it was it was a really good introduction to the fashion industry um, and living in Italy as well and all the things that that came that came with that and then I thought I was offered a job with Dewhurst, which is a big UK um, supplier into Marks and Spencers. And I kind of thought if I've got the design, the, the beautiful design input that I've learned from Max Mara and Morella, and then the, the bulk manufacturing understanding that I will learn from Marks and Spencers, that's a really good balance of both sides. But in reality, when I went to work for um, Dewhurst and Marks and Spencer, I absolutely loved it. It was phenomenal. It was it was the best job and I did it for 13 years because I loved it so much. And within within that, I worked within different departments, all ladies wear, um, from tailoring through to denim. So I was learning all about garment washing and tailoring. And it was when we then had um, factories in the UK. So the tailoring factory was up in Ashington in the northeast. The jeanswear factory was in Cardigan, which is now the Hyatt Denim factory. So I was, right, yeah. I was there an awful lot. And then we also then moved production over to North Africa, to Morocco and Turkey, and then further afield to Malaysia. So it was a really, really good grounding in manufacturing. And I did an awful lot of traveling, an awful lot of sourcing fabrics, developing fabrics. And because of the, the huge volumes that Marks and Spencer's work on, um, it, it, it was in terms of developing new fabrics and new finishes because the quantities were there. It, it, was, in, it was really interesting. It was a fascinating time to be working there. So I really enjoyed that. It sounds like a terrific background and getting that insight into the UK manufacturing, which is for the most part gone these days, yes. but then also getting that low cost manufacturing experience. It was, it was really good. It was, um, it was really good grounding. And also because Marks and Spencers were always at the forefront of developments in technology and finishing and laundry processes. Um, it was really interesting. Um, the, the difficulty the difficulty became with everything moving from the UK offshore. Um, 
And at Dewhurst, we we owned most of our factories. So we bought factories in Malaysia and Sri Lanka, um, all over the world. That as the design team, we would go and and camp out there for say a fortnight to put put the collection together, or a fortnight three weeks to put the collection together to bring then bring back. Um, so it was a really interesting time, but definitely a time to be to be single and in your twenties doing it. I don't think anybody could have maintained that that intensity whilst holding down a, a real life, you know, family job. Right. But from there to sportswear. Yes. Um, I I was living in London all of that time. And I originally come from Norfolk, East Anglia, where, where I now live. Um, and typical story, met a boy, fell in love. And having been devoted to my career for like 13 years and would never move. And he was, he said, oh, should we move up here? Yeah, fine. So I, I, I've been the job in within, <laughs> that's it, the, the blindness of, of love. So blind, <laughs> blindly threw the job in and, and then moved to Norfolk where there was zero fashion industry or so I thought, none whatsoever, um, except for in Suffolk, there was a, a subsidiary company of Adidas, which sounds ridiculous. And I thought it was quite ridiculous when I first heard about it. Um, and almost they likened it to Adidas is a huge machine, like like a giant oil tanker moving and it hasn't got the speed to do quick turnaround projects and small things that, that come up, like the speedboat that can do the quick things. So it wow. might be uniforms for the um, Paralympics timekeepers or the bobsleigh team need um, for the Beijing Olympics. Ridiculous, um, small, quick yeah. turnaround projects. So the company that I worked for there um, used to supply those in quick turnaround for special projects for Adidas, which was amazing, really exciting. That sounds like it probably was one of the more interesting jobs within the company. Absolutely. And I think because it was a small subsidiary, it it didn't have to play by the big corporate rules that huge organizations such as Adidas have to do, you know, so that the, the timeline from design to um, production was much much shortened because um, the quantities were much smaller as well but at any one point I think we probably had about 40 or 50 projects on the go so I was really heavily involved with 2012 Olympics um, South Africa World Cup and big tournament years in, in sportswear like that everything evolves around tournament years so every two years there's with normally there's something big a World Cup or a European Cup so it it was interesting it was really interesting and um, have, then I had a very steep learning curve in, into menswear, into football, into the minutiae detail of the width of the stripe on an AC Milan kit, you know, uh, <laughs> so many grand guidelines of all of these football clubs and the amazing history of all of these football clubs. So I really enjoyed it. Right. But from there, you then switched into another company, which was entirely unlike the three first. Yes. And... How did that come about? Um, that came about. Um, well, I had my two children while I was working for doing Adidas projects. And it beca- I was doing a, a sort of hour and a half commute, well, three hour commute there and back each day, which was not possible with two small children, like a year between them. It just became impossible to do that. So really fortunately, um, the company then said to me, look, why don't we employ you on a freelance basis and you can do our high profile design project. So instead of managing the design studio, I was then the freelance designer on their high profile projects. Um, and then from that became about several freelance design projects. So um, 
I was doing some Adidas, but then some, I did a really nice project for um, FIFA for their centenary. I think it was of a heritage collection and, and heritage and looking back at fashion has always been my real true love, the origins of where things come from and research and researching into where things came from and how things were made has always been my passion. So I really enjoyed that. And that's where it came about me being involved with Shackleton, with Simon Middleton, when he first started doing Shackleton Company, mm-hmm. um, which was brilliant. He's, again, local East Coast. And uh, I saw, so I think I might have seen something on TV or in a newspaper where they were making banjos and guitars and were interested in starting a fashion line. And uh, I think the banjos were before Shackleton. Yes, I think, yeah, the banjos came first and it was called... Um, I think it was called the Shackleton the Shackleton Company, and they did make the banjos, and then they decided to go into clothing. And it was when he f- was first looking at clothing, there were some really terrible – Simon won't mind me saying it – some really terrible hand-drawn pictures of a couple of coats. So I then emailed him, went, hi, do you need a hand with that? I've got like 20-odd years' experience designing. you know, And it's, it was a real passion of mine. So between us, we launched the first collection of clothing for Shackleton, which was really directly inspired by – Ernest Shackleton and the clothing of that era. So, um, and we did that for two or three seasons, which was brilliant, really exciting. I enjoyed doing that. Mm. So, the company you work for now, primarily Yarmouth yes. Oilskins, they've been around for some 120 odd years yeah. and have a long history supplying workwear, really. They have. For fish- fishermen and the like yeah um great yarmouth is my hometown it's where my family come from it's where i've grown up um i'm both my parents are born and bred and yarmouth stores has always been known as a chandlery and um supplier of clothing to to the maritime industry which is integral to great yarmouth so so much of great yarmouth's history is based on the sea um in terms of fishing and north sea oil and gas it also has the seaside um, Blackpool element to it but the, the true heart of Yarmouth is the port and river and the port and haven you know and all of everything all the activities along the seafront um, so the I, I kind of stumbled across across them I think in 2016 and they've been there sewing coming up for 125 years it will be but I think they were established a long time before that the official date is 1898 but they'd been sewing for about 50 or 60 years prior to that um and making all things for seafarers basket sail makers chandlery and importantly oil skins originally linseed waxed coats and then moved on later to pvc because the workwear that is being made today isn't really what um has been made say 20 years ago i imagine that they started making workwear of the time and that has changed with the times they yeah originally right up until i think probably about till the war till sort of like the 30s and 40s they were making everything they had shops in most uk ports um so there were shopkeepers and manufacturers and i think around about nine just before the war they employed 1200 people as machinists and shopkeepers and um and then the war kind of hit them hard i think and it kind of tied in with the demise of the fishing industry in great yarmouth and around about the 1960s was when north sea gas and oil picked up so they then started equipping all the vessels and the crews that were all involved in that industry. 
Um, and I think at that point, the PVC and the oil skins and the knitwear dropped off and they became a retailer of work of various different brands. But the factory that I'm involved in have concentrated more and more and more on cotton workwear um, and fireproof workwear and, and essentially PPE and healthcare uniforms and, you know, all of those things. I think that the sad thing that happened then, though, towards the end of the end of the 90s, the noughties, was so much manufacturing moved overseas and they were trying to compete with production from Asia, production from China. And when I first met them, they were making um, a lot of uniforms, but like chef's trousers and sort of quite cotton, it's mostly cotton twill sewing, but um, lots and lots of hot, low low work content in order to sell them at a mm. price that could therefore compete with the similar product made in, in Asia, or, you know. So that's where they were when I first met them. Um, the factory also does CMT, which is cut, make and trim for various manufacturing, you know, various labels. Um, mm. They've a long-standing relationship with Japan um, for I think about 17 or 18 years now, they've been manufacturing for Japan where they sell underneath the Yamo label, which is, which is our label originally. Um, and it has a very, very different um, profile in Japan, Yamo does, to in the UK where it was perceived as carpenter's jackets, Monty Don type jackets, chef's trousers, and, you know, relatively inexpensive workwear. Okay. That's interesting. I've not come across that before. What, oh. what sort of garments are the Yamo garments? Um, it's if you have an Instagram search of hashtag Yamo, it's phenomenal in Japan. They, um, it, it, it's it's very Japanese. It, it's really interesting. But most of that is cut, made, and trimmed by us. You know, as a contracted to us for us to make. So we don't we're not involved in the design of that, but we're used as the factoring the man the manufacturing for it. Um, but it's quite, it's very Japanese, you know, quite big shapes based on a workwear style. Um, and that's where I think before we relaunched Yarmouth Oilskins, most people knew, knew of the factory as Yamo. And when we decided that we wanted to kind of realign a, a, an element of the products that we we're making, we then had to, we then looked back into our archive and the, the name Yarmouth Oilskins was something that we had made you know, a century before and there's the beautiful logo and everything that already was there. So it seemed silly not to use that. Um, and also we wanted to have a point of difference to Yamo as it's known in Japan. So Yamath oil skins um, as our fashion heritage range was then kind of born. Right. Because the designs you're making now as Yamath oil skins are genuine designs from the archives the bus driver jacket and whatnot yeah they, they, they are. were designs that were made what we've what we've done originally when the, the factory wasn't doing particularly well in sort of before we relaunched the label it was trying to compete with high volume asian workwear it wasn't selling and it wasn't particularly no it was known for relatively cheap workwear so I approached the, the, it's a seventh generation owned family business. So I approached the owner of the business and said, you've got something really special here. You know, you, we ought to be making a bigger deal of it than we are. You know, the whole thing of a heritage factory with made in England, all sewn in cotton, all handmade in the same factory that it was made in 
over a hundred years ago is really special. And that's what uh, lots of other brands were fabricating or manufacturing or creating this mystique, whereas they had it and they weren't shouting about it. So he then said, okay, well, show me what would it look like? And he employed me then on a, I think it was two weeks we agreed on, two weeks on a freelance basis to put together a proposal of what it would look like. So that was the best project ever for me to do because it was so close close to um, the, the, the true fashion that I really love and my hometown and a phenomenal history. The archive is, is so impressive and there was so much to go on. So essentially what I did was pick out about 10 or 11 pieces from the archive that have been made all of the time, you know, going back 50, 60, 70 years. Um, and in that time, all of the the beautiful handmade detailing had had to be engineered out for cost, you know, so every, internal mm. things were overlocked. Um, the buttons weren't particularly nice. The buttonholes weren't very nice and totally overhauled the garment to put back in everything that should have been there originally that would have been there when it was first made. So we use French themes. We use lovely Reese keyhole button buttonholes. Um, we use a Corozo button, um, really thick, heavy bound tape and everything is made as it should have been way back, you know, but the patterns that we use and the fabric that we use are the core fabrics and the core patterns that we would have used, you know, many, many years ago when those styles were first, first launched. And, and clearly the result of those two weeks was successful because you're doing well now, aren't you? Yeah, it was, it was really good. We did the two weeks. I presented um, the, the design concept and plan and they were totally on board with it. Absolutely fabulous. Brilliant. Right. What can we do? We've booked to go to make it British in, I think it was four weeks time, four or five weeks time, maybe from that point. So, okay, I've booked a stand for us to go to make it British. We'll take the collection there then. And at this point we had nothing. We, we hadn't just my drawings on paper. So we then worked <laughs> ridiculously fast to, um, have labels made, have garments made, fit the garments, look at the garments, develop the buttons, um, all of that, which is complete um, testament to Sharon, our factory manager, who was fabulous, who must have thought, who on earth is this girl coming in telling us what we're making? And we went through all sorts to get to the point and then went to make it British. I, th I, can't remember, I think it was 2017 and um, had our collection there, um, not really knowing what to expect. Um, and it was brilliant. We had a really brilliant show and really good feedback from from everybody that came to see us. So which get was almost affirmation that that the the company owners needed that this actually was viable and there was something special there. And we you know we ought to go forwards with this proposal. So you must obviously have made contact then with uh, people who wanted to uh, to stock Yarmouth oilskins. We did. It was really difficult at the very beginning. It was. We had a lot of interest from from all sorts of places. Um, we had a, a John Lewis were very interested to do something, which panicked us slightly. They it, it was all too much too soon almost, and we had to mm. stand back and take stock of it because our factory it's a really old building. You know, it used to have a, a bucket on the stairs when it rained. It's not a John Lewis factory, you know, and nor are we at the speed of manufacturing. For John Lewis, it was quite difficult. So we had a, a had to really take stock of where we wanted to be with the brand, and I think that was something that we hadn't expected to have to deal with so soon. Um, and 
which was prudent, I think. It was to be take a cautious approach um, and to to tread very carefully, you know, to make sure that we were in the right place, where we wanted to pitch the brand, where we wanted to be. Was that the right outlet where we wanted people to come across our brand for the first time? So we sort of arrived at a, at a position where we wanted it not to be everywhere, but to be something that people kind of discover. So we've now got a really a really lovely kind of curated collection of independent re- retailers that sell it, um, and we've got really close relationships with them. It, it's a partnership, um, so people can be. I mean, Anthony from Assembly is perfect in that he will talk about it he will explain it and where it's come from and there's a story behind the brand it's not just something that you know you come across on a rail it, it, I think the story needs to be told a little bit about where it's from and how it's made so we've got a really nice collection of independent retailers and not necessarily all clothing shops there's a lot of lifestyle brands um, that stock us as well so that's kind of how people are, are finding out about the brand and then typically as you probably imagine we have a zero marketing budget <laughs> completely you know so it, and we sell online so it's quite tricky to get people to know about our brand so it's been a really slow growth but um and instagram has been brilliant in in sort of gathering together a, a gang of like-minded people who who like what we're doing and and spreading the word i think if you have a genuine story and strong strong images and, and authenticity, Instagram might actually, well used, replace a lot of marketing budget. Yeah. It, I mean, ma- magazine ads and so forth. I mean, I don't think in 2020 that is where, where things no. really lie. No, I don't. I think having good photography um, and good photographs of the images being worn is one of the most important things. And we, we're really fortunate in that we've had um, – a band of friends, I use that with inverted commas around it, friends who've helped us out um, in terms of getting things like photography sorted. And it's an ongoing thing because obviously the appetite of people to see images, see new images is almost insatiable, isn't it? So it's a constant thing to have photographs of the garments being worn and so people understand how it fits. And also the other thing that we've we've done quite a bit of trying to is educate people as to where the garments have come from. So our bus driver's jacket comes from a 1930s bus driver bus driver's uniform. So therefore it's cut this way because, you know, he's sitting at the wheel, so he's leaning forward. That's why it's got pleats in the back. Um, mm. Our engineer's jacket has got quite a wide sleeve because it's from an archive pattern where people would either roll their sleeves up or they needed to have their arms bent when they were work. So it, there's all of those things that I've been quite conscious that we don't dabble and make things a 2020 version of, you know, that we, it's quite authentic and it's timeless. Mm. Um, the fabrics you source, are they all made in Britain? As much as we can, the majority of fabrics that we use, um, they're, they're all dyed and finished in Britain. In terms of weaving in Britain, it's really tricky. There's um, English fine cottons who who are doing a brilliant job of, spinning and weaving in England but in terms of qualities that we can use it's quite tricky that there are some that meet the price point that we need it to be at um so at the moment we're kind of dyed and finished in England but not 
spun and woven. That's as much as we can get to. It's kind of a middle ground um, and the best we can get to at the moment. But there was obviously an ambition to have all British fabrics, all British woven fabrics. But it's just a kind of reflection of the industry that there's not those fabrics available to use quite so widely at the moment. I'm I'm hugely, hugely impressed that you actually managed to manufacture in Britain and keep the prices as low as you do. And this sort of confirms to me that manufacturing in England is actually possible to do if you don't have massive, massive markups, because obviously making it in a low-cost country would have been cheaper, but it's still not hugely expensive making it in Yarmouth. No, it's it's a. we always say that we're really transparent on the costings, and the cost is what the cost is. Nobody's lining their their pockets phenomenally with the profits from it. It's a fair price for something that is cut by hand. You know, it's, we don't have big Gerber cutters. It's cut by hand by Richard, husband and wife team, Richard and Lorraine, who lay the fabric up. They lay it up by hand on the big tables there. Um, they'll use the electronic knife to cut it out, but each pattern piece is cut around by hand and then it's bundled up, um, Sue will put the labels with it. It's all bundled up and then taken upstairs to the machinists. Um, and they each make a garment from beginning to end. We don't have a, a line production. Um, so each machinist will make from beginning to end, um, apart from maybe the bar tacks, the buttonholes and the buttons, the finishing. And then it's passed to the QC department who will then check, trim and package it. So it's all of those people are paid a decent you know, living wage for working in Britain. And it's all down to the amount of time that it takes each of those steps to happen, factoring in the cost of uh, running the factory, the heating, the factory, lighting the factory and all of that. So there's, that's why selling online is much better for us because therefore we'll make more money, you know, in, in, in the more of the share of the end price is ours rather than it going to a retailer. Mm-hmm. But we obviously appreciate that people want to see and feel and touch things. So we're not exclusively online, you know, for that reason. But it's a hard balance. It's a tricky balance. But I think, again, through our Instagram, we're quite clear about the, where the prices come from, you know. And it, it's a hard one, isn't it, you know, to, to work out. I think if you wanted to make an awful lot of profit but it's a fair price for the garments i think yeah i think if you were interested in making a huge profit you probably wouldn't making wouldn't be making that type of um, garments i do notice though i seem to recall a few of the names you mentioned from the instagram uh, and i think it's really great when you actually introduce people from the factory yes it's a really small team it's a it's a really small team there's um Sharon is the factory manager who has worked there since I think she was 25 and she came in as a machinist there um, and she says she was purely employed because there's there's a machine called a Bonadex machine, which is a waistband, you know, the, the kind of elasticated waist you get on sports shorts and things. And uh, right. Sharon came to the factory for an interview as a machinist and she knew how to thread the Bonadex, Bonadex machine, which nobody else knew how to thread. So I think she says she was hired purely on the basis that she knew how to work this particular machine. <laughs> and then fast forward, I don't know how many years, 27, 28 years, she's now the factory manager um, and running the, running the entire show, which is brilliant. Um, and we have a team of about 20 machinists many of whom have been with us for 
uh, well, up 10, 15, I think some of them 20 years. Um, and it's, it, it's a really nice community of people muddling along, working towards the, the, a common goal, you know, and there's an immense amount of pride and care that goes into it. Um, and I think you get that with a small team, you know, all in one building, a small team downstairs is cutting upstairs is sewing. Um, and everybody's interested in how well we're doing and what we're making. There's, um, we put a newsletter together every month. Well, Beth puts together a newsletter every month that keeps all of the machinists totally up to speed. So they know what's happening, who the visitors are, what we're sewing, who we're sewing it for, you know, which I think it counts, doesn't it? It makes a, a big difference. Oh yeah. Um, what was I going to say now? Um, God, I totally lost my thread. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Stopped talking. laughs> sorry. I should have carried on. Um, have you ever considered putting labels in the garments and it saying who actually made this garment? It's really interesting when we when we when I first put together that proposal, that two week project when I first put together the proposal. I had um, I had lots of really lovely images that I'd researched of French workwear and French dead stock workwear, um, and lots of them had a little, almost like a docket ticket, you know, that would be um, stitched over the pocket, like a little card tab over the pocket. And I thought it'd be really lovely to have made by whoever um, and a little signature, and then maybe a date stamp as to when it's made, um, and they. they there's, I don't know if you know, but there's tip tree ketchup in, in the UK. They always do it bottled by Louise, bottled by whoever. And I think it, it's that thing of making it a little bit special. Um, and so I put that on the initial proposal and then the logistics of it, just, we couldn't work it out. It, it was, it was at the time was too tricky to work it out. Um, so we kept a lot of the details, like the hand stamped size label in the back, um, but in terms of who it was made by, we didn't get around to doing it. And it was always something that was kind of on our radar we should do. Um, but just in terms of the logistics of making it work and for it to be authentic so that the machinist does actually sign it when she's made it rather than signing 20 labels and then them all being stitched on at the same time. You know, that that element of it, I, mean, I didn't want it to be fake. So, no, we haven't, but I do love the idea of that. And, and similarly, limited edition things I think are really important when people, it's special, isn't it? If you've got the, the second of 200. And, and so many of the production runs that we do are really little, you know, so there is potential to do that. And with some of the new products that we're making at the moment, there is an opportunity for that, you know, for them to be numbered or serial numbered or something, which I think makes it a bit more special for the owner, doesn't it? As a teenager of the 1980s and 90s, I know very well how limited edition uh, plays into uh, <laughs> the buying process. Yep. I've got stacks and stacks of limited edition records, Excellent. which I just had to have then because they were so limited. So limited. Of course, these days they're naturally completely worthless, but uh, oh, never mind. So many things that you think are really special when you're that age, and then you find out now that they're all on eBay and they're not really worth anything at all, but they're held in really high esteem. I, yeah, I can sympathise with that. I get that. <laughs> I think I appreciate them more these days than the actual value. But, yes, uh, yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a great way to do things, and the same goes for putting the maker's name on them. I mean, anything that makes it feel a bit special because yeah, it's it's contrary to what uh, what is being made in massive numbers 
abroad. That's so true. What we what we really make a point of doing is putting in a postcard with a thank you for your order signed by one of us that goes in, and they're all um, hand packaged, and we we package them in potato sacks that come from one of the local bag makers he normally makes bags for potatoes but he sells them to us because we're a very agricultural area so they come in a big big solid paper bag and we put a big um yarmouth oilskin stamp on the front and there we did at one point put in a stick of rock from great yarmouth with all of them and then it ended up being a minefield with sticky rock in against your beautiful new jacket and then having to put the rock in polythene and it was just a ridiculous it, it spiraled so no <laughs> but um i think I, I have one or two of those downstairs in my uh my collection room they'll rot I, haven't your teeth. Dared, <laughs> I haven't dared open them i yeah. sort of remember them from my childhood yeah um yeah <laughs> um sort of looping back a bit yarmouth oil skins oil skins were obviously one of the big things looking decades back mm-hmm. have you given any thought to bringing oil skin jackets back yeah, that's one of the big things that so many people have asked us. And it, I mean, it's it's obvious with it in the title. And it's always been my ambition that we would, because for me, outerwear is is the king of the king of clothing. I love outerwear. And I think you've said a thing before about men and jackets, that um, men seem to have an insatiable need for more jackets. Um, so that's where my heart is. And we've we've looked at resurrecting several styles. We, we're really fortunate in that in our archive, we've got several really impressive um, oilskin coats and some of the PVC ones as well. So what the, the project kind of last year that's they were kind of still ongoing is um, of the oilskin coats that we had in the archive, there's one particular that's a kind of maybe a bit of a bell staff barber type jacket. It's much more wearable. There's one other jacket we have that's like a dryser bone, a big long trench coat type thing. Which I don't think is as commercial. Australian, yeah. Australian outbreak, yeah. yeah, I don't think that's as commercial. But the, one of the coats we've had, we've got, is beautiful with a, a kind of corduroy collar, belted, big poacher's pockets on the side. Um, so one of the projects I worked on last year was to replica, um, make a make a direct replica of that jacket, which we've got to prototype point, and it's had a lot of interest, um, and. We're kind of stalling a little bit. We've got to the point of it's there, it's ready to go, and we love it. The difficulty is the commitment to either, because the value is quite high on it, so either we make several and hold them in stock, or I think the option we probably will do is to make them to order so that we're not making things that we know we're not going to sell. So we can make something to order and turn it around, I would say probably maximum four weeks. But in order to do that, we need to commit to the fabric so we have the fabric available. And the fabric is quite expensive. So it's all a bit of a um, a commitment. So we need the the confidence and the green light to go ahead and do that because it's not in it's not efficient for the factory to do it like that. But from my point of view as a designer and a passion for outerwear, that's what I think we should be doing. Um, so it's an ongoing thing. But we, we've also launched a more commercial, more com- I say more commercial, an easier price point waxed jacket, which is a kind of a waxed kaggle, which is based on a, a kind of over-the-head hooded smock sou'wester type thing that we had in the archive. Um, and we're using a dry wax for that, so it's much more manageable to make. Um, it's one from Hallie Stevenson. And um, 
We've made it in yellow navy and a really lovely forest green, which is the three colours that are on a an archive sailboard that we've got. We've got this amazing sailboard. It's like an oil painting of three three mariners in out at sea in this in in like stormy seas, and they're wearing these bright coloured sou'westers, and it's a Yarmouth Yarmouth oilskins protects you in any weather. So we've replicated those colours. And um, the Kaggles are going on sale, I think, in August. I think we're launching those in August. So they I have to, I have to admit, admit, I'm sort of tearing up here. This sounds so good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I am indulged. I do love it a lot. Um, yeah, so they're brilliant. So they're, they're really practical, um, over-the-head style, unlined, really lightweight. Um, but initially, we've only made 50 of each colorway just to test the water to see the popularity of them. And we had them all ready and cut to go just before lockdown. And then COVID came along and suddenly having seven or eight weeks wiped out of our schedule has made all of the factory orders behind and all of the ones that we've got as CMT for third parties, cut, make and trim for third parties. So we've kind of put them on the website for now for pre-order because thinking no one's really going to want to wear a waxed kaggle in July. So those are planned in to be available or end August time. So they're eagerly anticipated. <laughs> the sort of guys who are into jackets, they buy jackets, uh, inappropriate jackets all year round. Yes. So just to keep that in mind. <laughs> I'll tell them that. Um, next time. <laughs> I was wondering, um, the back to I'll loop again back to the the replicated oil skin, mm-hmm. the classic uh, belted version that has me uh, drooling here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what sort of wax cotton were you planning on using for that? Oh, it's brilliant! It's a really heavy, heavy. Um, which at this, at this point, this is when Sharon at the factory is getting very cross with me. It's a really heavy canvas weave. It's from British Millerain. I think it's a twelve ounce, so it's really quite a feat for the machine so therefore again that's probably why we'll end up making it to order because it's it's a tough old slog on the machines to sew it and because it's a, a wax a true wax it's the sort of wax that comes off on your fingers so once you finish sewing the machine needs to be cleaned down and you have to have a designated sewing machine for just for that material um, but it's it's brilliant it's got uh you know if you can imagine a wax fabric when you crease it the the wax kind of takes on the the patina of the creased fabric so uh-huh. it just ages beautifully so when you wear it and bend your arms you have really lovely sort of horizontal creases in the crooks of your arms and it just molds to the shape of you it's, it's brilliant i really love it it's true authentic it's for somebody who knows the the pains and the impracticalities of wearing a wax jacket but um I think it's really important that we're true to the roots. If we were to do that in a a 2020 dry wax, I think you it, it may as well just be something that you buy from Barber in John Lewis. I don't think it it would be special enough. So um we've been really authentic and really true to the the, the archive garment that we've made that we've got. <laughs> the more you're talking, the more you're selling this. I mean it's so obvious <laughs> that it needs to be made. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I have heard a sort of small rumour that compared to other wax jacket manufacturers in mm-hmm. the UK, um, Yarmouth really were originators. There's a, there's a really funny story. Um, prior to, to the relaunch of Yarmouth Oilskins, uh, a local historian wrote a book about the factory, which has been the best reference book for me in that she researched so much of the history of the factories. A lot of it is quite heavy going in terms of which factory was where on which road and who was the factory manager for each each branch. But um, 
there's a really interesting anecdote going back. Um, I think it was in about 1910, 1914, that one of our you know, ancestors of, of the current owners traveled to Australia where they saw um, people proofing fabric with wax or linseed at that point, and they would make the garment and then paint the linseed on to make it waterproof. And he was absolutely fascinated by this process and brought it back to Great Yarmouth, at which point we had whole teams of people who would make the garments and coat the garments to make them super water to, waterproof with linseed oil and then later with paraffin wax. And it was a revolutionary way of waterproofing garments back then. And then in this in the in the history book that we have about the factory, it, there's sort, sort of funny little quote that says, unfortunately. And Mr. Barber from North Shields also travelled to Australia like two or three years later, I think. So the guy from Barber went and saw the same process, brought it back to the northeast. Um, but he had the he had the foresight to patent the idea, um, and therefore the patenting of Barber jackets and wax jackets was on. Whereas Yarmouth had come back, copied the copied the 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 process, but not patented it, not marketed it as their own. And it's just like, oh, come on. <laughs> so it's quite a funny story, I think. It's quite strange she was able to patent something that patently was someone else's invention. I think so. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know whether it was a process that they just used in Australia at the time because I imagine doing those big bush ranger coats, you know. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, so they had whole factories that were dedicated to proofing and linseed coating and paraffin wax coating um and there's a in our archive there's some really beautiful photographs of it and then we've also got the bill of sale for a machine that would heat press fabric to um you know to process it with the paraffin wax and and there's a whole you know it's amazing how they were heavily involved in making oil skins um and then i think with the advent of pvc they it, PVC was thought of as much more practical in terms of it didn't come off. It, there was no wax transfer. It was much longer lasting. It didn't need to be recoated. So I think the world went crazy that PVC was the wonder fabric and then the wax coated ones were kind of abandoned. So I think we started making PVC, although we think of it as a 60s thing. I was speaking to um, Amber Butchart, who's a a fashion and textile historian and she was thinking that pvc was a lot earlier than that maybe back as far as the 30s and 40s which kind of ties in with some of the garments that we've got in our archive that look a lot older than the 60s um so it's quite interesting so they they then sort of focused on making pvc coats which is really again we've had lots of people contact us with um stories of having found a one a, 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 a pvc or a yarmouth oilskins coat in their attic or in a family archive or hidden away somewhere we had a, a really interesting letter from a chap in um argentina contact us that his i think it was his great grandfather had set sail from the uk on a boat in 19 oh gosh i don't know i think it was in the 20s He'd sailed from the UK to Argentina and he'd worn this Yarmouth Oilskins PVC um, uniform, you know, coat, trousers, sou'wester hat, 
everything. And he still had the garments there. And he sent us photographs of them from, from Argentina and the, the diary that his grandfather had kept on the journey. It's, just, it's really interesting. It, it ignites a passion in people, I think. You know, there's something going back that long with that much heritage. Yes, it's amazing, uh, especially once you start to sense that 120 years plus is, in fact, a really, really long time. Yes, yes, it is. It's phenomenal. It, it's, I, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it is. And I think the fact that we've stayed in the same town, largely in the same building, I think the building that we're in at the moment may have been used for sail making or basket making originally, but it's been clothing and workwear manufacture for the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Um, but it was always part of Yarmouth stores. Um, and we had uh, several other places and shops dotted around the town. Um, but I think the fact that we've largely stayed in the same place, it's always been owned by the same family. The archive is, it hasn't had much disruption to it. You know, we've not had wholesale moves, different site moves where people have had to clear out, you know, it, it stayed in the same safe pair of hands for, for all that time for up to, you know, 120 odd years. So I think that's why we're quite fortunate that people know where to find us and that there's still things in the attic and there's endless patterns that we can draw on. It's a, it's a good combination. Now, I noticed from the Instagram that you're doing well, very well in Asia. Is, uh, do you think it's the Britishness and the, the long history that's the factor there? I think it must be. I think it must be. They always, um, we've got several um, outlets in in Asia, in Japan and in Korea, and they're fabulous with their Instagram posts. They're really prolific and they'll put together flat lays of outfits and tag us in, you know, which are, which are really, and it's a very distinct look. But I think it's that preppy um, Britishness that they like, you know, I think so. Or is it the the sort of very working class uh, image? Yeah, might yeah. be. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it, it's undeniable that it's quite timeless. I think that that workwear, and we've always said from the beginning that we're not going to get hooked into endlessly producing new collections all the time. That that circus of the fashion industry of. Um, autumn, winter, spring, summer, new collections, and that insatiable appetite for newness. Um, we're not playing that game. You know, it, it, it's not practical or realistic, I don't think, at all. And it's not the way that many people are consuming fashion. Um, so we we have a core collection of garments, and that's what we make. We may add in and we may drop out, but it's never going to be a wholesale four times a year new collection because it just then, like I say, becomes a circus, doesn't it? And you're constantly chasing your tail and you're not reacting to how well sales are. So I think we're really fortunate as a brand in that we own our own factory. We can be really responsive to what's selling well, what isn't selling well. Um, and similarly on those lines, we we never have sales because we don't. we only make what we know we can sell. So the price is a realistic price. There's not huge markups that we can afford to slash and, and, you know, in terms of discounts and call it a sale. The price is quite honest. That's what it costs. And we only make what we are confident we will sell. So I think that's, that's a, a, 
a more realistic way. I know it might not be so possible, particularly in women's wear. I don't know where there seems to be a need for newness all the time, but it seems to tie in with how people are dressing and how people are being a bit more considered with their purchases. I think it speaks volumes about uh, credibility and authenticity, the fact that, I mean, you charge what it costs to make something. You don't give it away if it's sticking around for long mm. and uh, and keep making the good things. Because um, I noticed um, you have basically been making the same things up until now until you introduced smocks and some new trousers. Yeah, we've largely carried on making what we first launched with since since the beginning with the addition of a few extra pieces um we've dropped a couple of pieces the the bib and brace that we did the dungarees in the natural color weren't particularly great for us so i don't think we're making any more of those um but then things have kind of go through peaks and troughs of popularity we also do a a smock with a collar like a sailor's collar which has not been anywhere near as popular as the round neck smock it was quite interesting. So the traditional smock's been really good for us. And and particularly in the ticking stripe, the, the smock in the ticking stripe's been really good for us recently. So, and again, again, introducing a trouser was something that was obvious sense to do in that it's a really nice kind of contemporary suit, I think, to have a chore jacket and matching trousers. Um so it was it was a really obvious that we needed to have trousers and so many people have been asking for trousers. So I'm glad that we've been able to to bring those to market and get those, you know, ready for sale now. You have pretty much got the possibility now of making complete outfits. So I'm sort of thinking now, if you wore a complete only Yarmouth oilskins outfit, what would you look like? I, th- I think it depends on how you style it. Um, Liam from Sartorial Chap posted a picture of him wearing the jacket, the engineer's jacket and the trousers in the sulfur blue the other day. And it looked fabulous, looked really good. Um, We've launched a shirt as well, which is our first lightweight shirt. We've always done shirts in kind of a heavier weight twill, but we've launched a lightweight cambric kind of over the head um, collarless shirt at the moment as well. So there is the potential for layering everything i think it's it's an odd thing to dress exclusively in one label um that's not that's not how i dress i think people have special things from certain places but in theory you could it's something that i with obviously doing photo shoots we struggle with because i don't think it's real it's not real if you're dressed entirely from one label or unless it's a big label that sells everything but there's always a want to put knitwear or a t-shirt or something with it you know i think that's very right i often feel really odd if i'm sort of um wearing everything Mm. from one label which should sort of fit together but that tends to sort of overcook it a bit it does and i think that's the difficulty with photo shoots is that you want it to look real you don't want it to look like fancy dress you want it to look authentic and that's how somebody's dressing but unless we manufacture everything um and I, and again, it's that thing of I think we need to be experts in what we do. We at the moment we don't make t-shirts because it's it's a totally different setup in terms of manufacturing to what we make. And the same with knitwear, we don't. I understand there might be a desire or an appetite 
for those pieces. And if that was the case, then we would look to outsource them from similar manufacturers who have the same ethics and heritage as us. So it would be a complement to to our main collection. But um, in terms of making it ourselves, factories have real specialisms and we know what we can do and we know that we can do it well. And I think it's when you try and shoehorn a manufacturer into doing something that they don't do well is when you end up with problems. I think that's also when you sort of notice the cracks in the authenticity, mm. trying to do something they don't really know Absolutely. how it works. Yeah, because it looks like a version of, an interpretation of, rather than genuine. And and that's the thing, I think, because we know what we can make and we know how to do it well, and it's like falling off a log for the factory because that's what they do. It, it's when you start trying to manipulate something, it, 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 a square peg in a round hole, and it doesn't work. And we have that a lot with... Um, with the cut, make and trim that we do for other brands, there are things that we're known for that we do really well, you know, and, and we will be really honest if it's not our bag, that's not what we make, you know? And, and I think it's best to have that open dialogue to say, that's not our thing, you know? And, and because then you end up with trying to manufacture something that's not our handwriting and, you know, that's when problems arise, isn't it? I'm I'm terribly curious about who you make things for, but that might probably be a trade secret. No, well, we're quite open about lots of them. We have quite long-standing relationships with several brands um, that we shout about and they shout about us. So I, I think I can I can tell you a few of them. <laughs> we um, we do a great deal for Monty and Co. Children's Wear, um, which is fabulous. It's it's a British brand and it's almost like a mini version of what we do for Yarmouth Oilskins. There's dungarees there. There's chore jackets. Um, and it's brilliant. It's a really interesting company and they have a, a really good approach to traceability and sustainability in that obviously the nature of children's clothes, they grow out of them really quickly. So there's almost like a trade in where you can trade them back in and they will resell them. So they have a, a pre-loved section on their website. So it's that whole thing of, that I was unaware of until I had children that there's a, a big trade in passing clothes around everybody that you know who has a child that's that particular size. So Monty and Co are doing a brilliant job. And then also on women's wear, we do a great deal with um, Spry Workwear, which is a company making boiler suits for women, real um, empowered women's boiler suits, dungarees, jackets, chore jackets. So we have a long-standing relationship with them as well um, and working together. And then also since since the brand has grown in profile we're doing um there's a couple of collaborations in the pipeline that we're doing with other kind of similar brands to us so working with yarmouth oilskins um and so and so or so and so by yarmouth oilskins so um that's all in the pipeline and to come next year sounds very intriguing i see we're running out of time here so i'd like to ask you one final question Mm. What does sustainability mean to you? It's a really tricky one. And I know it's a big, um, it's a big word, isn't it? And we don't, we don't shout about sustainability as our main thing. You know, that's not our identity. But if through the nature of what we do, we have been grouped as a, we we are come under the umbrella of a a sustainability and brand. I think to me, it's um, a common sense approach to, 
to doing what you the best you possibly can do to have as little impact on the planet um and to promote um considered use you know there's so much about cotton and how uh how cotton is bad for the planet you know but it, it, it's, there's so much involved in what we would call sustainability um by the nature of what we do if we are a sustainable brand then that's fantastic but it's um it's not a credential that we it that's our own identity that's our only identity you know we we don't manufacture what we we only manufacture what we think we can sell. We source all of our fabrics and our materials from um, the best possible sources we can that are totally traceable. Um, and we try to have as little impact on the environment as possible. And our clothes will hopefully be around for a very long time. So there's not that insatiable demand and fabric going to landfill and waste. And, you know, it's just a sensible approach, I think, in 2020. If that comes under that title, then maybe that's that's it. But um, to us, it's it's a more considered approach to to ha- what we make and how we sell it. I think that's a very sensible and good answer, really, because uh, you sort of saw the trick question in it when I asked you. Uh, sustainability has become uh, a total hype, really. And I was looking at the Wikipedia entry for it one day, and I couldn't. I couldn't really make head or tails of it. No, uh, it must have been edited by so many people to be so comprehensive and really quite incomprehensible. That's the thing, isn't it? I th- it, it really is. And it's always that question that's like, oh, gosh, are we? I don't know. And I'd hate to say that we were a sustainable, you know, we don't peg that as our identity. But I think through the nature of what we do, we come under that bracket. And if people want to use that word to describe us, but we just take a sensible approach, I think, to, to being as gentle on the planet and kind on resources as we possibly can you know which i think most people do well a lot of companies use the word very um, haphazardly and freely without having any obvious uh, claim to it <laughs> so, uh, yeah i think it's a, it's, it's a tricky one it is and i think what we do it has kind of i don't want to say coincidentally it's kind of timed in with where we are in 2020 that it happens to be that what we're doing is seems to be deemed the correct way to do things but um that's not by manufacture that's purely um that's where we've ended up and that's how we approach things and we would have been doing this 10 years ago or in 10 years time that's how we, that's how we work i think as a business model it's very admirable and sensible so uh the fact that it happens to also be, quote, sustainable, unquote, is um, <laughs> just good. Brilliant. Okay, Sophie, thanks a lot. This was wonderful. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. And uh, have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. all for this week thanks a lot for listening and thanks to sophie miller of yarmouth oilskins for being my guest i am nick johannesson you can find me on instagram as well dad i have a blog at welldressedad.com and uh, you can email me at you guessed it welldressedad at gmail.com there'll be a new episode out next week in the meantime i'd love it if you uh, gave me a follow on the platform of your choice 
homology is widely available. Uh, if you'd also give me a rating or a review, that would be lovely. So thanks a lot for now and uh, catch you soon.